0: Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SAIL30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SAIL30.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.
0: Hello and welcome to what is a bonus episode of the Irish History Podcast. What you're about to hear are the first two episodes in my new series, This Week in Irish History, This is a new weekly podcast series that looks at some of the most fascinating stories from our past on the weeks that they took place. It's an entirely separate series to this show, and while these two episodes are available in this feed, to get future shows you will need to subscribe to This Week in Irish History wherever you listen to podcasts. The first part of this episode. Was the first episode of this week in Irish history, and it looks at the life of James McLean, one of Ireland's most famous highwaymen, who was executed on October the third, 1750. The second half of the podcast was the second episode of this week in Irish history, and it looks at Oliver Cromwell's siege of Wexford in 1649. These episodes give you a sense of what you can expect to get every week once you subscribe to this week in Irish history. There's already a third show available there, so to get that. After this show, all you have to do is go to This Week in Irish History. But now, let's begin with the story of James McLean, Ireland's most famous highwayman. The name Tyburn means little today. It was once a rural village outside the city of London, but it has long been swallowed up by the city's suburbs. While it might be forgotten today, in the 18th century, Tyburn was one of England's most famous villages. It was a name that could strike terror into the most hardened killer. More people were hanged at Tyburn than anywhere else in England, all of them dispatched by something known as the Tyburn tree, a gallows used to execute the condemned of London. For 600 years Tyburn played host to strange spectacles that were public executions. In many ways they were a ghoulish version of reality television. Thousands, in some case tens of thousands of people, would come to watch a condemned criminal being hanged. Afterwards, depending on how the executed person had conducted themselves, the event would be considered a good or bad hanging by the gathered onlookers. If the misfortunate victim of the Tyburn tree had held their nerve until the end they would be considered to have put in a decent performance. On October 3rd 1750, One of the more memorable executions took place when the Irishman James Maclean was brought to four miles from London's Newgate prison to be hanged before a crowd of thousands at Tyburn. His charge was that of being a convicted highwayman. Maclean, up to his execution, was something of a larger-than-life figure, inspiring several films and novels. Born in County Monaghan in 1724, few could have foreseen the path James Maclean would take in life. His father and brother Archibald were both clergymen. Young James was supposed to become a merchant. However, he quickly tired of this and indeed all work altogether. Conveniently, when he was only 16, his father died and left him an inheritance which allowed him to avoid what he saw as the tiresome business of earning a living. However, he quickly burned through his father's money and after concocting more than a few get-rich schemes that involved deceiving his relatives, he was left with no option but to get a job and he went into service in 1742. Going into service in the 18th century meant literally serving another and young James, only 18 years of age, became a footman and then subsequently a butler to a Colonel Tonson of Dunkettle in County Cork. Now such a menial post was far below the station James McLean imagined for himself in life and he did not remain long in Tonson's service. He was dismissed after being discovered helping himself to the colonel's wine. Over the following months he lived on handouts from his brother until he made peace with his former employer Colonel Thompson who brought him to England in 1743 and there McLean said he planned to join the army. Now for a man who struggled with the discipline of work army life was far beyond him and unsurprisingly he quickly gave up on his military career. Having left the army he managed to get £50 from a relative under the pretext that he was heading to the English colonies in the West Indies. It's worth bearing in mind now that £50 was a considerable amount of money in the 1740s. His relative perhaps saw this as a worthwhile investment, that it would rid them of a cousin who would invariably be coming back to them on a constant basis looking for more money. However, James MacLean had no intention of leaving England. Instead he spent the £50 on finery and started to court a certain Miss MacLogan, the daughter of a wealthy innkeeper. By 1745 the two had married and set up a grocer's shop in London. However, our James, ever the workshy type, struggled with the role of merchant. He and his wife had two daughters but when his wife died in 1748 he left his children with his mother-in-law sold the shop and became a man of leisure in London from the proceeds. Now soon after this his mother-in-law came after him demanding money for the upkeep of his children but Maclean decided to flee London and approached his brother Archibald who gave him money for a passage to Jamaica but true to his form James would never quite make it. In spectacular but unsurprising style he lost everything while gambling the night before he was due to sail. It was around this point that he fell in with another Irishman, William Plunkett. Now Maclean would later say that it was Plunkett who convinced him to become a highwayman, although one suspects James had few qualms if it helped him avoid having to do any actual work. A highwayman was someone who robbed people on the highway or road, and while it carried a death sentence in the 18th century, it was not as risky as we might think. In a world without DNA analysis, fingerprinting or CCTV, the key to success was making a good getaway. Once you were successfully away from the crime scene, you had a very good chance of escaping scot-free, if you were careful. Plunkett and McLean got off to a great start and set themselves apart. They were not going to be ordinary highwaymen. They wore Venetian masks, the type you'd see at masquerade balls and this get up along with their demeanour would earn them the reputation of gentlemen highwaymen. Their first robbery was on Hounslow Heath to the south west of London which went off without a hitch and this triggered dozens more. Within six months the two had robbed sixteen people but never killed anyone in the process, a trace that added to their reputation. All the while McLean was living the life of a wealthy Irish man of leisure in London society. In November 1749 the two pulled off their most famous job when they robbed the carriage of Horace Walpole, a politician and writer and one of the most well-known Londoners of the day. However on this occasion McLean accidentally fired his pistol but luckily did miss Walpole. Walpole did however suffer powder burns on his cheeks. The pair made away with valuables but Walpole, a man of means, offered 20 guineas for news leading to their capture. Maclean, seeing himself as a gentleman at this point, bizarrely wrote a letter to Walpole apologising for the powder burns before cheekily offering to sell him back his goods for 40 guineas. Plunkett and Maclean's crime spree continued until June the 26th 1750 when the pair had a particularly productive evening. First they robbed the Salisbury stagecoach and then, encountering Lord Eglinton, they robbed him of money and a gun. This haul would prove to be their undoing, though. McLean, who was getting sloppy at this stage, sold clothing he had robbed from the stagecoach to a shop but one of the passengers, Josiah Higdon, spotted them in the window. This quickly led to the arrest of McLean who was never the brightest and had actually given his real name and address to the shop. Arrested he quickly became a sensation being dubbed the gentleman robber. Brought forward for trial he confessed everything in what seems to have been a moment of madness driven by remorse. Indeed he had been told if he named at least two other people he would have avoided the noose but rather than invent a third person he stuck to the truth saying it was just he and Plunkett. He did however try and pin most of the blame on Plunkett saying it had been he who instigated the whole scheme. At his trial in the Old Bailey McLean retracted this confession saying Plunkett alone had carried out the robberies. He explained his possession of stolen goods by claiming Plunkett had used them to repay a debt he had owed McLean. This didn't work. Aged 36, James McLean was convicted and sentenced to death. Taken from Newgate Prison on October 3rd, 1750, he was hanged in front of a crowd of thousands. James MacLean, it was said, died an impressive death at Tyburn. An 18th century account claimed he, and I quote here, went through the awful scene with a manly firmness joined with all the appearance of true devotion. William Plunkett, his partner in crime was never apprehended. However unsurprisingly the two have gone down as some of the most famous highwaymen in history. The most recent film inspired by their story was the 1999 film Plunkett and McLean starring Robert Carlyle and Johnny Lee Miller. Just over 30 years after James McLean's execution another highwayman John Austin earned the dubious honour of being the last victim of the Tyburn tree when he faced the drop on November 3rd, 1783. Next we will be hearing what was the second episode in the series on Oliver Cromwell's Siege of Wexford, which took place in 1649.
1: Ready to pop the question? For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
0: The 17th century in Ireland was unquestionably a very bleak time. So much so that it's difficult to find positives or uplifting chapters in our history from this period. When describing day-to-day life, the words of the philosopher Thomas Hobbes, nasty, brutish and short spring to mind. They are certainly apt to describe a century that towers above all others in Irish history for misery, even though Ireland has had its fair share of bloody and violent epochs. The century fittingly opened and closed with wars. As the 17th century began the Nine Years War, a bloody conflict lasting from 1594 to 1603, raged across the island. Meanwhile at the other end of this bleak century Ireland was still recovering from yet another war this one known as the War of the Two Kings that had only ended in 1691. Important as these wars were they paled in significance beside the wars of the 1640s and 50s during which the siege of Wexford took place. Contemporaries estimated that somewhere in the region of 40% of the population of Ireland died between the years 1641 and 1653. While modern historians estimate that the true figure was closer to 20% this is still a staggering figure. In those 12 short years the Irish population fell from around 1 million to 800,000 people leaving the island on its knees. Now this slaughter was not just the result of one war but a series of interrelated conflicts that lasted through the 1640s into the early 1650s. The siege of Wexford took place in 1649 during a particularly brutal phase of these wars. The background to these conflicts of the 1640s and 50s is far from straightforward. Even for those who lived through them they must have seemed confusing and chaotic at times many must have found it difficult to fully understand what was happening in the same way that we find it difficult to fully understand the forces at play in the Syrian civil war. The wars had started in 1641 with a major rebellion in Ulster. While this was sparked by resentment over land dispossession it was also fuelled by rising sectarian tensions between Catholics and Protestants and deep anxiety about what the future held for old Irish families. The rebellion would soon spread across the island with Catholics taking control of the political system. Meanwhile across the water in England, the outbreak of the English Civil War in 1642 added another dimension. This saw parliamentary forces defeat the Royalist armies and then in January 1649 they executed King Charles I. It was inevitable however that this war would affect Ireland, given the island had been ruled by England since the 1170s. Indeed having emerged victorious in England, the parliamentary leader Oliver Cromwell turned his gaze west to Ireland to secure what was England's oldest colony. Now this was something that deeply worried many in Ireland with good reason. The Catholics who now dominated the island had loosely supported the defeated King Charles I so they knew they could expect no mercy from Cromwell and his forces when they landed in Ireland However, to make matters worse, the parliamentary forces harboured deep suspicion, resentment and outright hatred toward Catholics, and Irish Catholics in particular. These combined for an explosive mix. It was in August 1649 that the parliamentary forces, known as the New Model Army, landed in Dublin, led in person by Oliver Cromwell. Dublin was the only place they could land in Ireland unopposed as the port had remained loyal to parliament through the later years of the English Civil War. However, once they left the city they would face staunch resistance. That said, the new model army were well equipped and battle hardened from their experiences in the English Civil War. Led personally by Cromwell, their initial strategy was to secure Irish ports along the eastern seaboard. To this end, having landed in Dublin, they marched north. To the walled city of Drogheda, thirty miles from Dublin. During this brutal siege, Cromwell and his new model army established a reputation for brutality that would be the hallmark of their campaign in Ireland. Having made two breaches in the walls of Drogheda, they began a full assault on September the eleventh. Forcing their way in, the new model army began what is still, over three hundred and fifty years later, regarded as one of the most notorious massacres in Irish history. The garrison of Drogheda were put to the sword, Catholic priests were butchered and large numbers of civilians were killed in the streets. The violence was shocking and brutal. As word spread this naturally terrified many across Ireland and those thinking of further resistance began to veer towards surrender. Very quickly the garrisons of Trim and Dundalk, both towns near Drogheda, capitulated to save themselves a similar fate. Having secured Drogheda and its hinterland, Cromwell and his forces now turned to the other major port on the south coast, Wexford. One of Ireland's oldest towns, Wexford ticked all the boxes in terms of being on Cromwell's hit list. Strategically it was very important. The town was built on the south bank of the estuary of the River Slaney where it opened into the sea forming a natural harbour. Aside from this however it had also been a hotbed of opposition to Cromwell's parliamentary forces. Large numbers of privateers, essentially pirates, had been based in the poor town during the previous decade and from here they had been able to constantly harass ships travelling between England and Dublin which had been one of the few places in Ireland loyal to Cromwell and Parliament. For the people of Wexford the reputation of the new model army preceded them. Word of what had happened in Drogheda had spread fast. The panic that gripped the town as the new model army encircled it on October 2nd 1649 must have been terrifying. The inhabitants were trapped inside the walls and all they could do was watch as their enemies prepared the siege guns for an inevitable assault. Unsurprisingly many and Wexford, feeling their position was hopeless, wanted to surrender. If they opened their gates They had some chance but they knew they could expect no mercy if the town resisted and the soldiers of the new model army broke their way in. In that scenario a massacre like that which had happened at Drogheda would be inevitable. However the commander of the town's garrison, David Sinnett, was of a very different mindset. While he did open negotiations he did not seem to be serious about finding a compromise that would allow the town escape a full assault. He set out demands that seemed to have had little chance of being accepted. It actually seems that Sinnott had one eye on the horizon during these negotiations. He knew that about 20 miles away the Duke of Ormond, a powerful Irish aristocrat, was amassing an army at the town of New Ross. So it seems he was hoping that this army would arrive to drive back the Cromwellian forces. Essentially he was playing for time and trying to string out the negotiations. It didn't work. Cromwell rejected Synod's terms and the negotiations broke down. With no sign of the Duke of Ormond the guns of the new model army opened up and began to bombard the walls of Wexford. These were well trained and expert gunners and similar to what had happened in Drogheda they breached the walls of Wexford in two places. As the smoke cleared this must have confirmed the worst nightmares of the inhabitants of the town. There was little they could do now to hold back the new model army. However before an attack was launched hope of salvation appeared. Cromwell at this point undoubtedly feeling that he was in a sufficiently strong position decided to reopen negotiations with the commander of Wexford's garrison David Sinnott. This time he presumed the hoped Sinnott would have lost the will to fight. Cromwell had ulterior motives though it should be said that given it was already mid-October he was concerned about the fast approaching winter and wanted to use Wexford as a winter quarters for the new model army. So taking the town intact without a fight would have been in his best interests. Therefore negotiations were opened. However on October the 11th exactly one month after the sack of Drogheda in an event still not fully understood the new model army suddenly launched an attack This was totally duplicitous and what provoked it was uncertain. The garrison of Wexford, who assumed there was a truce on, given there was negotiations underway, was caught completely off guard and as the Cromwellian forces poured through the breaches in the walls any semblance of an organised defence collapsed. Chaos reigned supreme. The garrison of Wexford, including David Sinnott and his commanders, fled towards the river Slaney, situated on the northern edge of the town, in the hope that they could swim to the far bank and reach safety. Manny drowned or was shot while they swam across the river. Meanwhile, back in Wexford, the events that had devastated Drada a month earlier were replayed inside the town. The intensity of the attack was utterly savage. During the sack 2,000 soldiers in Oliver Cromwell's own estimation were killed while well over a thousand townspeople were massacred. The hatred of Catholicism among the new model army soldiers saw large numbers of clerics killed as well. The level of damage in the town of Wexford was immense. Indeed the town was very nearly completely destroyed while the port was burned. Such was the level of destruction that Cromwell had to give up on his plan to use Wexford as a winter garrison as he had initially hoped. Instead having looted, burned and massacred their way through the port the new model army left the smouldering ruin in their wake. Indeed the situation was so bad that Wexford was utterly crippled and in the following decade the remaining townsfolk would have to write to England asking for more settlers as so many people had been killed. The bloody and brutal siege at Wexford had mixed effects. It's undeniably true that some were petrified about what would result if they resisted Cromwell and towns like New Ross surrendered almost immediately others however drew very different lessons the treachery involved in the assault on Wexford was a factor in the dogged resistance Cromwell faced in other irish towns garrisons were afraid to enter negotiations in fear of what would happen indeed after Wexford the new model army went on to the nearby port of waterford but were repulsed by the garrison there Ultimately they would have to spend the winter of 1649 in the Port of Yale. Cromwell and his forces would ultimately devastate Ireland contributing heavily to that enormous population loss of that terrible decade. They would eventually take Waterford during a second attempt and all other towns that held out against them would fall one by one until they finally captured Galway in 1652 bringing the main phase of the Cromwellian conquest of Ireland to an end. If you enjoyed these two episodes, there's already a third show available at This Week in Irish History and this looks at the story of Henry II's visit to Ireland in 1171, possibly one of the most important events in Irish history. You can check that out at This Week in Irish History. That's This Week in Irish History. Until next time, sloan. Here's
1: a cool fact.